that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. How do addictive traits manifest? General terms, when we're speaking outside, we call it addiction, but clinically we call it substance use disorder. It's a masturbation as a, as a problem, and I don't know how to go about it. Instant gratification, that's what they offer. And so when I am feeling um, unhappy, when I'm feeling down, if I'm feeling like my self-confidence is getting in the way of me approaching a person, then I might try to use a substance to very quickly give me that gratification that I yeah, very quickly so that I can be able to do the activity that I want. Because each one of us comes with different psychological traits. You see the way your physical body is, you've got your eyes maybe from your mom, you've got your nose from your dad, you've got your lips from your mom and dad a bit. So psychological traits are like that. You've got a bit of your mom's anger, a bit of your dad's you know, drive, but then you've also got your own that you came with. That's very unique to you. And that's why there are some disorders, like personality disorders, that we can see their tendencies very, very early on. Like a child with, a child who's likely to become a sociopath, we can actually see it at the age of four or six. As for me, I've had three sexual harassments and one attempted rape from a close relative. This has caused me to be so afraid of sex. The issue is when I started dating most guys wanted sex, I decided and convinced myself I cannot do it. So I tried. It was so painful that I couldn't bear it. Hello everyone, welcome to Laughing Love Quotes. I am your host, Dr. Hedin Mohamed. Today we have a lovely guest with us, the one and only Dr. Nima Araka, a consultant psychiatrist at Fisahi Consultancy Clinic, a champion of preventative and promotive mental health care, a master in psychotherapy and behavioral therapy, personality traits, just to mention a few. Uh, welcome, Doc. Thank you very much. Uh, how 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 are you how are you doing? How's life treating? Right now, I'm doing very good because you said I'm lovely. I'm the only one. Okay. Um. So today's topic is a little bit um something that has always been there, but before we started this talk, you mentioned that uh, it's something that's always said for the sake of saying with no proper action behind it, and. To get deep into it, um, I personally have always wondered, and I can speak for majority of the people in the audience, when I say that, um, how do addictive traits manifest, like Kwanza uh, Kuzoya, uh, let's say, what's it called, substance flani, <laughs> but Kuzoya, Mihadarati flani, Ortavia, Omoenendo flani, how, how does it come about? Okay, so we, we do Swahili. You can do both. Okay. This makes it. It's quite hard for me to mix both languages. So, addiction is not a clinical term anymore. It used to be. So now we've changed it to what we call substance use disorder. And that's a bit more neutral. Substance use would be, would vary in severity. So those who would have problems with a drug mildly, moderately, and severely, yeah? 
And when we look at substance use disorders, what it means is that the use of that substance, whether it's alcohol or cannabis or cocaine or opioids, the use is causing significant impairment in their different areas of life, their ability to perform their roles, their ability to take up responsibility or to even show up to work maybe or to engage socially. So the substance has to impair those important aspects of their lives. And we look at maybe three or four components. Number one is that there's impairment of impulse control. That's what makes it a disorder or an addiction. So in general terms, when we're speaking outside, we call it addiction. But clinically, we call it substance use disorder. So I'm going to interchange the two labels. So one is impairment of impulse control. Impairment of impulse, meaning that you decide that you're going to have, let's say, two bottles of beer, but then you end up having ten. You spend a lot of time, you know, finding ways to get that substance. And so that means that a lot of that time is being taken away from time you would have spent with people. So that's the social impairment. You start having relationship problems that are caused directly either by intoxication of the substance or by the long-term use of the substance. So you don't show up to family yeah. functions. You don't pick up the groceries if you're supposed to do that or do the laundry. So those are the traits that we look at mainly. And then other things like tolerance, where you find yourself increasing the use of that substance to reach the desire or the pleasure that you're looking for before. Uh, then craving, where you find yourself just unable to think about anything else but getting that substance. And then that now may lead to things like dependence and dependence value to withdrawal. Yeah, so those are the key things that we look at when we look at addictive behaviors. Okay. Uh, I think it was well put. And mm -hmm. um, are there reasons, per se, where certain individuals would have like a favorite kind of drug or? I thought about that. It's a very interesting question. Why would a person go for alcohol, another one go for cocaine, and another one go for cannabis? I haven't come across literature that answers that question, but what we have is why, why are some people more likely to get into substance use, any substance use, and others not likely to get into substance use. And that brings us into an understanding of why people use substance. Substance is a source of pleasure. Different substances offer different kinds, kinds of, pleasure. of pleasure, yes, different levels of pleasure. And this goes to the activation of the pleasure system in our brain, the reward system in our brain. And substances activate them differently from adaptive things, from good things that we do. So, for example, if I want to feel happy, I can either decide to use adaptive mechanisms to generate that feeling of happiness, which is the activation of the reward system in the brain, or I can use maladaptive. So adaptive takes time, like exercise or, you know, having routine, sleeping well, eating well, those take a bit of time, but substances, they tend to work quite, quite fast. instant gratification, that's what they offer. And so when I am feeling um, unhappy, when I'm feeling down, if I'm feeling like my self-confidence is getting in the way of me approaching a person, then I might try to use a substance to very quickly give me that gratification that I yeah, very quickly so that I can be able to do the activity that I want. And so for people who are looking for instant gratification, 
or for people who have a tendency to do that, then they're more likely to get into substance use. For people who have more patience, who have the ability to wait, then they're likely to continue using these adaptive mechanisms that are usually not instantly gratifying. Basically like talking to a person, yes, talking to someone else about your problem, waiting to see how you can find ways to solve that problem, but staying in the discomfort of that problem, yes. Okay. And just aside from the way we're doing things, I kind of notice like a majority of guys in the healthcare industry some of them have a problem with a certain substance, either smoking or drinking. It's there. Do you think it's um, it's an how do I put this? It's a way of getting out of the situations that they're in, in terms of like a coping mechanism or yes, substance use disorder. You have to put disorder because there are people who use a substance and they don't have consequences, negative consequences as a result of using that substance. The people who drink their alcohol and they have control over their impulses, it does not cause any problems in their relationships or in their ability to work. So substance use disorder, this is when now the use of that substance is causing consequences. And in most of the cases, what we've seen is that People use substances or start abusing substances as a way of coping with the difficulties that they're experiencing in life. So if, for example, I'm going through a breakup and I have weed um, available to me, it's accessible to me. So I'm probably going to use that as a way of calming me down or numbing the feelings of heartbreak or betrayal or disappointment. So the question that you asked, I think one of the factors, the question that you asked, why do people use cannabis or cocaine? One of the factors is that by availability, what is available to them, what is accessible to them, what they can afford. So yes, substance use disorder, one of the fundamental problems is a way of coping with the difficulties or the challenges in life. Okay. And you will... Now, coming down a little bit to the science a bit of it, mm-hmm. how does it work? And there are certain systems in the body that would say um, this person is likely to get addicted to this or someone who is, does it have a genetic role behind it? Does it have a societal or an upbringing mode of life to it where I saw my father drink I might end up drinking too, things like that. Is there a system or an explanation behind that? So the question is, what are the risk factors that could predispose a person to substance use disorders? Different substances might have more specific risk factors, but we can look at general risk factors. History of substance use disorder in a family member, especially with alcohol, predisposes a person to alcohol use disorder. So if you have one relative who had substance use disorder, either on your mom's side, on your dad's side, and these are blood-related relatives, then you carry the risk. It doesn't mean that you're going to actually get the alcohol use disorder, but you just carry the vulnerability, meaning you might, you'll need other factors in your environment to precipitate that first episode of alcohol use disorder. Like a trigger. Like a trigger, yes. So for alcohol, yes, um, I haven't seen data that says cannabis is the same, but alcohol strongly, a positive family history predisposes you. 
other things that are important to look at are adverse childhood experiences. So things like abuse, neglect, violence. And abuse here is not just physical. Abuse can be emotional. So you have a parent who's continually manipulating you or continually making you doubt your reality. You know the way parents, when they are upset or in crisis mode, they tend to make these promises that they don't know they're making that the child is taking seriously. Like if, if you don't, if you eat your food, I'm going to take you for ice cream. And then the child eats the food and then you don't take them to ice cream. And they ask you, is anyone going to take me to ice cream? Yes, because for the child, that's a promise. I did what you asked me to do. So now, so those can predict, and I'm not saying one incident, you know, this would be repeated in perhaps the same context or different context. And so the child now starts doubting whether they actually had the parent promise because the parent is denying it. And so that really distorts the perception of reality that the child has and doubts whether they can form their own perception because it might be wrong. And so they might grow up maybe just wanting to check, did I really do this? So growing up, those are some of the outcomes that you might see where they don't have the confidence to believe in what they do. Purely because purely because of those things that happened to them and how they internalized them, how they perceived them. So ACEs are a big risk factor for substance use disorders. Yeah, neglect as well, emotional neglect, because, and I, I'm going to quote something done by Dr. Ramon Mate. He's a physician who has a lot of interest in trauma. He said, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And that speaks to the things that research has been telling us again and again, what we say coping mechanism, because I don't know how to feel happy with my parent. I didn't know how to feel pleased or delighted around my parent. I didn't learn how to feel positive feelings. But when I started using alcohol and I started smoking weed, I started experiencing that pleasure. And so now I'm using that to avoid feeling this unhappiness on this side, the distress on this side, the anxiety, you know, the betrayal. Yeah. And so if you want to help someone with addiction, one of the ways is to show them that they can be loved because that's what they've been deprived of for a long time. So adverse childhood experiences speaks to that. The other thing is they did an experiment for children. It's called the marshmallow experiment. Mm -hmm. And what they did is they took toddlers about three, four years old and put them on a table and put one marshmallow. And they told the child, if you don't eat it, I'm going to give you two. And so there were children who ate it and the children who waited for the other ones and they should eat two. And so the ones who were not able to wait, it showed that they're the ones that tend to have this need for instant gratification, want, you know, quick happiness, yes, yes. And later in life, they ended up not being able to hold jobs. They ended up getting into substance use disorder because they could not wait in the discomfort. You know, watching a marshmallow and you're a child, you crave the sweet, you want to eat it. Mm -hmm. So for you to wait, that shows patience, that shows, yeah, that you can persist in the in the face of challenge and so later in life when you're facing a difficulty you can find ways that will take time for you to feel better but you can be patient in that waiting but i know that some studies have come up to try and challenge this because i'm saying there are some children who are brought up in environments that may have made them unable to wait for example if you come from a resource limited place where food is not enough so the food you have, you don't know when you're going to next the next marshmallow. Yeah. yeah. So they're saying that you have to consider all these other factors that may have perhaps contributed to those children who are not able to wait for the other marshmallow. 
that for them the mentality is what if I don't get the second one okay. and then this one gets taken away perhaps this is the only marshmallow that I'm going to have today so those are some of the factors that could predispose a person to a substance use disorder okay and in terms of I mean, dealing with how do we break down this assuming now as an individual I'm a person that's dealing with uh, let's say masturbation as a, as a problem and I don't know how to go about it and what are the things that would affect people like me who have such a problem and is there a kind of stigma that would limit me from speaking it out Okay. And what would hinder them from seeking help? So number one, what is the problem that you're experiencing with masturbation? You see, <laughs> the behavior itself is not a problem. It becomes a problem when you're overdoing it or when you're starting to experience negative consequences as a result of it. So from... Uh, professional perspective, masturbation itself is not the problem. And so now that brings me to my question, hypothetically, in the example that you're giving, what is the problem with the masturbation? Like consistency, just wanting to do it every single time. Do you have the urge to do it? Yes. Do you also have the desire to stop doing it? Uh, assuming, yes. Yes, because under substance use disorders, yeah, there's usually the desire that you want to stop doing it or you want to reduce it, but then you're unable to. You keep having these failures in your attempt. So for masturbation, is it with porn or without porn? Uh, without. Without it's porn. So it's just the behavior of masturbation as a problem. So by the time you're coming to me, it's because you're experiencing some distress with the behavior. Otherwise, you're able to handle it. So you've lost your impulse control and you want to see if you can get it back. So I'd go back to understand the first time when you started going into masturbation. What was driving you there? Okay. Yeah. What were you looking for? And do you have a partner or do you not have a partner? At what age are you doing it? Is it a teenager? So you're, you just came into this sexual, secondary sexual characteristics and so you're exploring, you're curious. And... Different dynamics or different scenarios would mean the factors shift. If it's a teenager, then it's just exploring, is it? Mm -hmm. And you want to understand, is there a religious aspect to it? Do you feel like it's wrong to masturbate and that's why you're feeling the distress when doing it, but then you don't have the impulse control? If it is that, then why is the religious teaching not enough to help you stop masturbating? What makes you continue? And then you look at the friends around peer pressure, yeah? if other kids are doing it, and I think boys have a tendency of telling each other, or yeah, so if other people are doing it and they're around that environment, what is the what is this cue, this thing that stimulates the person to want to do it? So in the environment, you look at it. And then I'll use a way of explaining craving, yeah? So many people with substance use disorder tend to have cravings. They want to do the thing when they want to get the substance. So to understand the craving, we can use the theory by Ivan Pavlov, the classical conditioning, yeah? 
And I'll explain the theory and then see how it applies to the craving. So Ivan Pavlov came to this by accident. He's, he was a physiologist, so he was studying salivation in dogs in his lab. And this research assistant used to bring food to the dogs. So what he observed is that when the food is placed in front of them, they would, hide, they would salivate more. But then when he continued watching them, he realized that when the assistant just walked in the door, they would start salivating. Yeah, so that is the cue, that when they see the assistant, they start salivating. And this goes to your unconscious mind. So a person would tell you, um, I'm not around peer pressure, I'm just alone, but I still get the urge to masturbate. But you see, for them, the reason they started masturbating initially when they had the impulse control is because they had that privacy. Yeah, they were able to be alone. And that has now become an unconscious trigger or cue such that whenever you're alone, then you have the opportunity to masturbate. And so being alone becomes a cue that you want to identify, understand, yes. And say that for now, I think I should not be sleeping in a room by myself because I'm going to masturbate. And so you have to identify these cues that lead to that behavior of masturbation. And when you're able to identify them, then you start changing the response or perhaps you start avoiding it for the time being if you can, yes, to start dealing with the behavioral masturbation. And in terms of speaking out a bit, because you find that in my in my part, you know, I've only had one person come and tell me, Doc, I have a problem with this, what do I do? And I was shocked for the first time. I was like, okay, you actually came and told me. I wasn't expecting it. It was like an 18-year-old boy. And we sat down, just had a chat and asked what, what would be the triggers. And for him, it was purely from the bravery aspect to come out and actually say it. But you notice that you find so many people have a problem, but they keep it to themselves. What do you think we can do to give them that kind of confidence so that they can get out of their comfort zone and speak about it? Did he see the shock in your face? No. Uh, I don't always I ask. <laughs> okay. So the subject itself is a bit taboo. I mean, our culture does not really encourage us to talk about sex, not even masturbation, just sex generally. So those are some of the barriers perhaps that we may have. And does that mean that we should make it normal to just talk about sex? I don't know. Because like I said, that's a societal barrier. It's not my call to make. But for doctors, I think patients or people tend to trust doctors to help them with different issues. And this is a physical issue. And I've seen a lot of them come to actually seek help, either because they are, they have some wounds that have developed as a result of friction from the masturbation, or if they have a sexual partner, then they're not able to perform as much. They're not able to, they're having, experiencing sexual dysfunction. And so they would come and seek help and the way that we treat the person who's coming to seek for help, I think, really helps build their confidence in their pursuit for getting that help. And so when they go and talk to someone else, when someone else has a problem and they hear about it, they're able to encourage that person to go and seek help. So I think the way we treat the people who actually come forward is a very good step because they're the ones who are now going to go out and tell the other people that, oh, you can get help for masturbation. Yes, other things, creating awareness is still very important because there's someone who's out there suffering and doesn't know that they're suffering. 
they think it's just a challenge that they have to, you know, or to, a, to deal with or live with every day, yes. But then there is actually help that can ease that challenge for them. So awareness conversations like these ones, they do help. Because if someone is listening right now and they are struggling with masturbation, then they're probably going to look within their, where they are to look for help from a doctor maybe or from a psychiatrist, depending on what they think the problem is. And I hope anyone, any member in the audience who is listening, we can pick something out of this. And uh, on the next bit, in terms of substance use disorder and some of these behavioral concepts, like uh, addiction to porn and masturbation, there is always every action has a reaction. Okay. So we know the action and how it comes about and the hypothesis behind it. What are the consequences that come about after in the context of maybe now children? Mm. If, um, let's say, a six-year-old kid walks into a room and sees an advert of a, of a porn plane on a TV screen or something like that, is it something that would impact them and how would it impact them per se? So a six-year-old, you want to understand how... What's the level of their cognitive capacity? Yeah. yeah. And it's very limited at that time. So they might not understand anything. Maybe they might find it a bit filthy because they can see parts of the body, but they might not make much of it. And that's why when, and this is perhaps sad to say, so that's a warning, when a six-year-old is raped, they don't know how to conceptualize that. They don't know how to take that. And your, our minds has this protective way of making us, of alleviating emotional pain. So it's going to go into repression mode, you know, just repress that memory. Yeah. Put it to the unconscious mind, forget it happened. So if a child is, is raped in the morning by 10, they don't even know what happened, they're playing. But it's you, the mother, because you understand what that means and what that is going to, how that is going to impact the child later. You are left with the trauma the child is going to probably experience that trauma much, much later, maybe 10 years, 15 years later, if that memory now gets triggered. So for children, it's very hard to tell in that immediate time how they're perceiving these things. Yes. But it would be good not to expose them to, to these things. So as a parent, if you have a child in the house, maybe don't watch it on the TV. Not that I'm encouraging you to watch it, but perhaps do it more discreetly, more privately, yeah. But um, the other question is in terms of later on in the sexual life. Yes. Would it have an impact? I say we know that the memory was repressed some kind of way. Yeah. Now they're now adults and sexual life is cut across all genders and everyone. Does it have an impact on it? Yes, it does have an it can have a mean, but let me now say it has. It can have an impact. Remember, the memory is repressed. You might go your whole life without meeting a trigger that activates that memory into life. It's like um, um, a ghost that's lying sleeping. Yeah. So there are people who might never have issues because that memory never gets triggered. But for those who get that memory triggered, then it starts manifesting in different ways. Remember, they're not conscious of what happened. 
They just have an emotional experience about it. And so either they might be hypersexual, the people who after getting raped, for some reason, they seek it because at that point when they were getting exposed to that trauma, it made them feel numb. It made them feel nothing. And so now their mind is looking for that feeling, not necessarily the sex itself, but the activity enables them to get into that space. And so you get adolescents who just have sex with different people and they don't feel anything. And they're looking for that not feeling anything like an escape. Or you might find others who never want to date men, who never want to be even around men. So the reason for the different interpretations is because each one of us comes with different psychological traits. You see the way your physical body is, you've got your eyes maybe from your mom, you've got your nose from your dad, you've got your lips from your mom and dad a bit. So psychological traits are like that. You've got a bit of your mom's anger, a bit of your dad's you know, drive, but then you've also got your own that you came with that's very unique to you. And that's why there are some disorders, like personality disorders, that we can see their tendencies very, very early on. Like a child with a child who's likely to become a sociopath, we can actually see it at the age of four or six in their behavior because that's the trait that they came with. They don't have empathy from birth. They were not born with it. And so they might start killing pets in the house without any remorse, without any empathy. So when you look at the different psychological traits, that means that it can be very difficult for us to predict a linear pattern in which someone is going to turn out after a particular trauma. So there are many different outcomes, and that's why every individual would have to be assessed differently, differently and then get the interventions that are very specific to their needs. And finally, I think we've come to the last bit of it. Yeah. This was really nice. Um, in terms of like enabling our community. Yes. And making them understand that every action has a reaction, an yes. equal reaction per se, mm -hmm. from the choices they make in life, uh, from the decisions, basically like choosing to start smoking mm -hmm. after having some kind of influence behind it, and maybe porn, maybe masturbation, whatever kind of uh, addiction process it is, how do we as a community help ourselves to make sure that this scourge doesn't really affect ourselves as individuals, the young children who are coming up, and amongst basically the society itself. What kind of roles or how do we empower these communities basically? So a community is made up of many households and different households have got different families. So I'll go back to that quote, which I think makes a lot of sense because people who turn to substance use, they're turning to it to get something that they're not getting from the environment. So let's create ways of connecting with each other. We now have, you know, these social media platforms, mobile phones, we're able to reach to each other at um, instantly, but we're not connecting with them emotionally. I can send you a text, hi, and you say hi. And for me, I'm trying to, in my head, create a way for that hi to mean something to me. So in a lot of times, we find ourselves living in our head 
rather than with the person near yeah, us. Yeah, because yeah. we're creating how how did that person mean this text? So if we can have more physical contact, more physical presence, more physical connection, I think there will be less need. Yes, yes. So I talked about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. You can tell that a child is going to is likely to get into substance use from the age of four. So at four years old, how do you as a parent teach your child how to regulate by you yourself being regulated? Because between two years and four years, get children with tantrums. And it can be very difficult to manage. But you, you're the parent, you're supposed to be the authority over that. But then you yourself, you become very harsh. Instead of offering emotional support to that child who needs it, you reprimand them for it. You cane them for it. And so now they know that if I'm in pain, I should not tell anyone else because I'm likely to get more pain from expressing my pain. So as communities and from individual households, try to love your family member, try to engage emotionally, engage psychologically, you know, get into conversation. It doesn't have to be about the problem of substance use. Just go have a movie, go watch a movie together, go sit and have a meal and talk about something completely different. Expand the aspects of your relationship so that you can know each other. Okay, I have a question on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, sometimes you come across... Uh... Someone saying, oh, we put our kids or son. Uh-huh. And is there a way of like getting a balance where there is rule of authority and there is play. Play and showing affection. And yes. Is there a way we can give an idea of finding a balance in between the two? That's the job of the parent to to balance between playfulness and enforcing discipline in the child this child does not have the, the well it undeveloped frontal lobe where we make decisions and rationale and practical thinking yeah so this child does not have a developed frontal lobe they don't know that if i pull this it's going to get broken and it's expensive the child doesn't know that so it's you as the parent to create an environment that enables the child to have the play, but also you put restrictions for them to know that if you jump over this couch, you might break your hand or you might, you understand? So it's different ages have different requirements. A two-year-old is different from a six-year-old. A two-year-old once you can't put a two-year-old here. Yes. But you see, parents would leave glasses on the on the table, and then the two year old will go and break it, and then you'll start now shouting. They don't understand. They don't even understand that breaking it is a bad thing. So it it is you your responsibility as a parent to make sure that that glass is not there. Yes, because they don't have the capacity to think that way, to think about consequences. And so you as a parent, you're supposed to create that balance in yourself to provide it to your child so that they can be able to grow in a nurturing environment. Okay. And one other thing is you notice, uh, I don't know if it's me or anyone else, you notice that the father is the authoritarian mm -hmm. and the mother would be the peacekeeper basically and the loving one. It's quite the same in traditional homes from back then to maybe up to now. Do you think there should be a shift in the dynamic or it should be it should stay the same? I think the shift is there in some homes. Yeah, that 
the parent is actually the dad is actually the more loving parent because they don't have to be there all the time they don't have to clean the water that's been spilled over by the child they don't have to you know clean the the drawings that have been done on the wall yes yes so so they come when it's actually come on the the mother has done all the work but again different homes would have different dynamics both parents what what we are learning now in different studies is that both parents are equally important in the child's development there's a role that the mother plays in the child and there's a role that the father plays and each of them is important in its own respect yeah right okay uh wait we, we had bits on on yeah there's some there are some members of the audience who reached out right and we had to put it in an anonymous perspective so the person don't shrink to reveal their identities okay so so this is one of them salam as for me i've had three sexual harassments and one attempted rape from a close relative this has caused me to be so afraid of sex the issue is when I start dating most guys wanted sex, I decided and convinced myself I cannot do it. So I tried. It was so painful that I couldn't bear it and all. That is one person. What what do you think, Doc? I think I'd want to understand how the attempted trend happened. Mm-hmm. Was it one attempt or was it multiple attempts? Does their relative stay in the same house? I want to know about the harassment and at what age these things happened. Was it before the age of 12 or after the age of 12? I'd also want to know what was the pressure in trying sex for herself? What, was, what, what did she want to, to know or to learn? Is it that she could do it or she was trying to challenge herself to do it? Because, and even the harassment, did it happen by familiar people or unfamiliar people? Was it in a in a familiar environment or an unfamiliar environment? There's, there's so many things I want to understand because the things that happen to us come in different sizes. And our capacity to deal with them, our ability to cope with them is very different. I might have a very good support system. I come from a loving family. And so if this harassment happened, I would be able to go and talk to someone about it and I'd be able to actually use that to overcome it. Another person comes from a background where they don't have support systems, yeah, they don't have someone to talk to, or they're equally being... Harassed, yeah, it's happening there and it's also happening there, so they don't have a break. And so it's not really the size of the problem, it's not how many times you've been harassed, it's how it has affected you, how it has affected different areas of your life. Because there are people who can also just sit by themselves and find ways to to overcome it, yeah, to, to process it, to develop cognitive mechanisms to make this thing, yes, we call it cognitive appraisal and make a bad situation seem okay. But that's just to be able to cope with it. So I'd have a lot of questions around it to understand how it is affecting the person okay. then and now. So the next person says, I struggle with high-functioning depression 
good things. I can't be around people too much and I get irritated so fast. I also get triggered. So please connect me to any Muslim therapist you want. I think this one, we did last night. And what do you think about that? So I think, number one, high-functioning depression. We don't have that as a clinical term. I know it's a term that's well-known. What is depression? Does he have the symptoms that qualify him for a depressive episode? And depression, there are nine main symptoms, but you only need five out of those nine to make a diagnosis. So does he fit the diagnosis of depression, number one? And then number two is he doesn't want to be around people, is it? Yeah, he gets irritated. So is that, is that something new or has that always been the case? Because we know that people have different personality types, yeah. And for us clinically, we use the five big personality dimensions. They have the mnemonic ocean, yeah. Open-minded, conscientious, extroverted, agreeable, neuroticism. So for people who come under extroversion, it's usually on a spectrum. So extroversion is on one side and then the opposite is introversion. So if a person is introverted, of course, around people, they get drained, crowds of people, and they're also more susceptible to depression. So I'd want to know, is that a new symptom or has that always been there? And what was the other thing? And... High functioning depression, mood swings. Yeah, these mood swings. How often, how frequently do they change? Um, That's what I would want to know, yeah? And the mood swings, are they, because you see, when we are assessing a patient for, for their mental health, yeah, and they say that they get angry very quickly, it's very important for us to see, is there a reasonable trigger to make them angry? Because the problem is not not feeling or not having emotions. It's for you to know what is the right emotion to have for the trigger that you ex- you're exposed to. So if you get me irritated, then I respond in irritation. That's very normal. And if in an hour someone makes me happy and I respond in, in, in joy, that's normal. So... In a day, we are supposed to experience these waves of emotions. But many people, because they find it perhaps too difficult, they think they shouldn't. They should just be like this. Like, I should be like this all the time. Even when you step on me, even when you... Yes, and I should just be... That's not that is not a human being that we're dealing with. Yeah. So even when you come to therapy, the point is regulate your emotions. So these mood swings, is there a trigger behind them? Are you in an environment that continually just makes you unhappy or just makes you sad? Because that's a factor to consider. Because when you're away from that environment, are you are you okay? Do you find, you feel that like you're, yeah, you're emotionally stable when you're away from an environment that is triggering? So I'd have many questions to ask. I think um, this is the last bit. Okay. Uh, what's the link between neurodivergence and addiction, e.g. autism and addiction? So I do hear the term neurodivergent. I think clinically we haven't quite accepted it. And I think it's used to describe what we call neurodevelopmental illnesses because these are illnesses 
these are mental illnesses that usually develop during the developmental period. So the first 12 years of life. And the main problem with neurodevelopmental illnesses is how the brain works. It works different from other people. So things like ADHD, you have problems with impulsivity, hyperactivity, and inattention, yeah. Autism, you have problems with social reciprocity, you have repetitive movement, yeah. So there, there are studies that show that particularly ADHD, I haven't come across autism and also because I don't do child psychiatry a lot. ADHD is an illness that now we know persists way into adulthood, yeah? And there's one component about it that predisposes people to substance use and that is the emotional dysregulation. They have anger issues, they're easily irritable, people with ADHD. And so, because they don't know how to manage that, they might again go to maladaptive mechanisms to try and quiet those, yeah, those emotions that make them feel distressed or anxious. So for ADHD, yes, there is a very strong link with mm -hmm. substance use, especially the alcohol. Autism, I don't know. Okay. Hey, I think we've come to the end. Okay. Yeah, nice. The, the feeling. Really? Yeah. Uh, okay. I think we all learned a lot. Uh, it was a pleasure having you here. Um, Thank you for inviting me. It was a huge, huge pleasure. And we're all honoured. Honestly, and I think everyone in the audience should come say hi, see you in person if they need to. Okay. Uh, laughing Lab Good Guys, if you need to get a professional opinion, Doc is here. You can go see her. And we'll also, you can also check out her page. She has some really interesting insights regarding, uh, with matters regarding mental health and basically sanity and trying to take care of your mental well being. So I think we'll call it time and you all can check out our pages, uh, subscribe, share, like this content, tell a friend to tell a friend and we'll see you guys on the next one. Done.